Welcome to the American College of Mohs Surgery podcast series, Conversations in Mohs Surgery, where Dr. Thomas Kanakstat, academic dermatologist and Mohs surgeon in Cleveland, takes a closer look at articles published in the dermatology literature by speaking with the authors and researchers involved. The podcast is an extension of the college's online bibliography, a searchable high-yield article reference library aligned with the Micrographic Surgery and Dermatologic Oncology Fellowship Curriculum, accessible to ACMS members at www.mosecollege.org slash bibliography. Listeners can suggest articles for inclusion in the bibliography or guests for this podcast by sending an email to info at mosecollege.org. That's info at mohscollege.org. Thank you for listening. Hello, this is Dr. Thomas Knaxted once again for Conversations in Mohs Surgery. Today I'm going to be speaking with Dr. David Carr from The Ohio State University. David is an associate professor in the Division of Dermatology. He's the director of Mohs Surgery as well as the fellowship director for the MSDO Fellowship at OSU. Thank you so much for joining me on this Friday, David. Thanks for having me, Tom. So I thought we'd take this um, time to talk about your recent publication. We're going to be discussing a article that was just published online and is not yet in press uh, in Derm Surge titled Utility of Debulk Specimens During Mohs Surgery for Cutaneous Squamous Cell Carcinoma. And what I thought we'd start out with is just sort of our convention, which is tell us how that study came to be. Sure. So we, you know, a lot of our more recent work has been on high risk factor identification and sort of parsing out um, some of the details of high risk factors. You know, and as we go through this conversation, obviously, you know, for most surgeons, most of those listening on the call, where we get these high risk factors, where we identify them typically is from the initial biopsy, however, that was performed, and then from the Mohs specimen itself. And very often, in most cases, a lot of us aren't doing debulk specimens. So obviously, we have that on-foss um, pathologic um, look at the tumor. Um, but a lot of times, we're not sort of looking back up into the middle of the tumor. And, you know, obviously, on, on exam, many cases, we can see that clinically, there's still some there. So the, the question here was whether or not we're really missing something. And if we are missing something, are we better able to characterize what tumors we should be looking at? Okay. And then um, I, I guess before we get into the details of your actual finding, what has been or what is currently your workflow as it relates to tumor debulks? Maybe you can share with our listeners how you're doing that. Are you using a 15 blade, a, a razor blade, derma blade? Are you doing it on every squamous cell? What's your general workflow and how has that maybe changed before or after the study? Yeah, so our, our workflow now has been um, uh, informed by the study for sure. So generally speaking, for tumors over two centimeters, we'll do debulk specimens. Obviously, in the, what we'll talk about, the way that we actually did the study, we really try to balance. Obviously, our first concern is making sure that the Mohs layer is good um, and is reasonable and that the debulk doesn't affect the fidelity of the Mohs layer. 
Um, but in normally we'll do them with two centimeter specimens. We do them with a 15 blade. You could certainly do this with a derma blade, sort of in a saucerization type pattern. Uh, but because we already have a 15 blade on the um, on the field, that's what we use. Um, we go right at the edge of the actual tumor, so we don't go out into the margin at all, but we go right onto the edge. Normally, we'll go sort of at the dermal sub-Q junction, but for larger tumors where it's obviously going to go a little bit deeper, we'll go below. It doesn't add a ton of time to processing. Um, sometimes we'll even just save these for the end of the day if we're having a busy day or if we have a little bit of time as we're processing the case, we'll do it then. So it's sort of it's whatever works for the flow of the day to not sort of hold things up. Um, and we'll do vertical sections through the debulk. Okay. And I'm going to have a bunch of questions um, for you in terms of how to best implement that as well as some special sites like maybe the ear, for example. But mm -hmm. why don't you first start by just giving us an overview of, of what you all found um, in your study since, again, it's only available online as of right now. It'll be published later on this year, but many of our listeners may not have had a chance to read the entire manuscript yet. Right. So um, we, our primary thing that we were looking for is, was an increase in high-risk factor from biopsy to debulk. Um, and we separated our groups into two primary groups. This was a continually or a continuous um, case series. So we tried to take selection bias out of it um, by any comer with a squam to our office for most surgery was included and they all had debulks. Um, we sort of separated the two groups into a restricted and non-restricted. Um, the restricted group only counted as a high-risk factor if the high-risk factor met criteria for either AJCC8 or the Brigham. Um, and so that's if their tumor differentiation went up to poorly differentiated from something less so on the biopsy. Um, if they had perineural invasion of nerves greater than 0.1 millimeters, or if they had a Breslow depth greater than six millimeters. And then for the non-restricted analysis or a looser definition analysis, um, we included any worsening of tumor differentiation from biopsy to debulk, any new PNI, and Breslow depth greater than two millimeters. And we found that in the restricted analysis, so those that would only be upstaged or counted as a high-risk factor on the current staging systems, about 4% of tumors had a high-risk factor identified. And about half of those were Breslow depth greater than six and half of them were poor differentiation. And then in the non-restricted, unsurprisingly, because of the looser terms, um, we found that about a third of patients, so about 33% had a high risk factor identified. Most of those were a Breslow depth greater than two millimeters. And that was about 90%. And then out of the rest, um, differentiation was about 10%. And there were two cases of perineural invasion. Um, and both of those nerves were 0 0.09, so they fell below the threshold um, for the restricted analysis. So we found that about 4% had a high risk factor, as would be a high risk factor on the current staging systems in the restricted, and about a third in the non-restricted analysis. We also then looked at the tumor stage, um, comparing data that you would get from the biopsy and from Mohs, so what would be considered a more normal workflow, and then the biopsy plus debulk, debulk plus Mohs, so adding that debulk into the overall staging. 
And, you know, some of the previous data on this had numbers around 10 to 12 percent were upstaged. There was a review back in 2017 that looked at this and our numbers were a little bit lower than that. So we found that on the Brigham, there were about four out of 277. So about a, a percent and a half um, that were upstaged. And on the AJCC8 system, um, about two percent of tumors or five were upstaged. So I think the overall thrust here is that, you know, there, there definitely is a incidence of high risk factor identification that even meet criteria for the current staging systems, um, but it's low. So I think it's a twofold story where I think in many cases, uh, the flow of biopsies straight to MOS without debulk analysis um, is very reasonable. Uh, but there probably are some tumors where we can, where we might be missing some important information and that debulk analysis might be reasonable. So we went on to do a univariable and a multivariable analysis. And this was just on the non-restricted cohort um, because the outcomes were pretty low in the restricted. Um, and so it, the outcomes weren't enough to do a multivariate analysis um, on, the non on the restricted. So in this, we found in the multivariable um, that the biggest factor for high-risk factor identification um, was tumor size. Um, so we had an odds ratio of about 11.8. So 11.8 times the odds um, of high-risk factor identification um, if the tumor, the clinical size, was over two centimeters. Um, it was by far and away the one with the highest odds ratio um, in the multivariable. And that sort of translates to my current workflow um, which is where if tumors are over um, two centimeters, we will generally do debulk analysis. And so that means ba basically you're, you're predicting here and knowing that a tumor is greater than two centimeters makes the probability that you're going to encounter additional high risk features on the debulk that weren't seen on the biopsy more likely. So the, the tumor size is just another red flag that a debulk should be necessary then? Yeah, at least that's what we see on the multivariable. Um, and again, this is a multivariable for the non-restricted analysis. So it's, it's using those looser terms. Uh, but yes, it's mm -hmm. the one with the highest odds. There are a few other with significant um, findings, but the odds ratios were much lower. So the one that really does stick out is the clinical size. And based on that, now your main threshold is for having a two centimeter tumor. Obviously what we don't capture in the staging systems is things like immunosuppression. How does that factor into your decision to, to do a debulk as well as you know, recurrent nature of the tumor or simply knowing your patient makes bad cancers? Yeah, I mean, that definitely, that comes into the clinical decision-making. We talk about this a little bit in the paper, how, you know, not all of our high-risk factors are in the staging criteria. We actually do include transplant status. So not all immunosuppression, but immunosuppression from um, in organ transplant recipients. Um, and this is, it was significant in the univariable, but not in the multivariable um, analysis as far as having transplant, a history of transplant. But certainly that does, you know, just dichotomizing it into greater than two or less than two, doing debulk just in those that are larger is an oversimplification. You know, certainly these other factors, knowing the patient, knowing what kind of tumors they make, making that clinical judgment comes into play as well. Um, but as far as the data, it's hard to parse that out 
um, and, and back that up with, with raw data from this study. So when you've done this debulk, it uh, is in your lab and depending on how busy the day is, your histotech may process that together with the case or do it later on in the day. And then what happens to the information that you generate from that debulk? Do you record that on the MOSE map? Does it go into your procedure note? I'm asking this because I do think that there is sort of a, a, a knowledge gap and potentially even a performance measure um, in, in this conversation, because I do think it is a way to deliver higher quality care according to what you're proposing here. Yeah, and I agree with you. So, th so the way that we do this, again, we our, our big things is that we want to balance flow in the Mose Lab. We want to balance our ability to perform Mose layers, and and again, that sort of last part, our ability to form the Mose layer is the most important. And so we, when we take these debulks, honestly, most of them will be done just right along with the case. We'll have time to do that. But if we do have a big case that day, things are backing up something else. It can easily be put to the end of the day so it doesn't back up the rest of our cases. We do, we work on an EMR and we have a smart phrase that's just like a dot debulk smart phrase where we can put everything that we see on the debulk, whether we see it or whether we don't. And so we do include this in the actual um, Mo's note itself when the debulk is performed. Now, David, you're recording Breslow thickness for your tumors. Correct. Can you comment on where you measure and uh, how you measure that, please? Mm -hmm. in, so in terms of the tool? Yeah. So how are you doing this? So you'll need a micrometer to take the measurement um, of the actual tumor. Um, so this is something that's easily put onto the microscope itself, um, and it's not very expensive, and it allows you to measure um, the depth itself. Um, the Breslow measurement is definitely something I think that is not well understood um, and is often reported incorrectly, um, even by reading dermatologists dermatopathologists and most surgeons, um, there are different ways to measure the depth, but the defined way to measure a Breslow depth is from um, surrounding normal epidermis. So it's not from the top of the tumor down, it's from the edge of the tumor down to the actual base, which is why you wanna go right at the edge of the tumor so you have that normal, uh, that normal shoulder epidermis and then down to the bottom of the tumor. Um, these can be really hard measurements sometimes, so there certainly is um, a degree of judgment that you have to use um, because a lot of times our tumors are large and so to get these and get that correct measurement um, can be challenging, um, and it takes a number of reads um, and some um, familiarity with the process in order to actually get the measurement. Um, and I'd, I'd love to see um, a study that looks at the reliability um, of doing these Breslow measurements in these large squamous cell tumors, because I think this is very different than doing a Breslow measurement in a melanoma, um, where you're dealing with less tumor volume in most cases um, as compared to a squamous cell. Uh, but that's how we read um, the Breslow measurement. I guess that raises um, an additional question. How do you handle it if your debulk uh, would be of a size that would preclude from sort of bisecting and putting it onto a single um, block and then slide? Are you doing punch biopsies within the debulk or are you sort of taking incisional biopsies of your debulk or how are you trying to transfer as much information from the debulk as possible 
onto your slide when they're um, a larger debulk? Um, so you'd have to sort of take that in a case by case basis. So, you know, if you're in, again, in our tumors, we had very few over four centimeters. Um, but in those cases, if there's an exophytic component to it at all, um, that can actually be sort of processed separately um, from the base of the debulk as it won't affect the overall Breslow measurement. Um, just because of our tumor characteristics and what was included in this cohort, that tends not to be too much of an issue, but that would have to be taken on a case-by-case -case basis because we are limited by the overall size of the slide. Okay, yeah, that that's the one area where I've struggled in my practice. I think I perform a debulk just about every time there's clinical residual just because, much like you, I've found that I can more or less seamlessly integrate it into my clinical practice but it does get harder for larger tumors where you're trying to find representative areas to find the most aggressive area of growth, much like in a melanoma or other tumor. Mm -hmm. One of the, you know, sort of surrogates for Breslow depth is arguably simply the depth of invasion. And our staging systems do account for simply having invasion beyond dermis into the subcutis. Did that play any role in your study as a measurement? Did, did you look at all? at that or because your tumors were generally, uh, your debulks were generally removed at the derm um, dermal subcutaneous junction, you really don't comment on subcutaneous invasion as a high-risk feature. Right. And, and in the staging system, it's uh, beyond the subcutaneous fat. So that begins to be really tricky to do with a, a debulk in many instances, because now you're starting to get to the point where the debulk is so deep that you may lose the fidelity of your Mohs layer. And so in most cases, we're nowhere near a depth where we're going through the subcutaneous tissue um, to get to a point of actually recording beyond sub-Q um, invasion. So there, you know, it's definitely a limitation of, of, of a debulk. Do you have any tips for some of the areas where we have just the most narrow of tissue planes to take a Mohs layer to begin with? Um, areas like cartilage on the ear or the fingernail, uh, where it's already difficult to have a sort of comprehensive deep margin without violating bone on the nail or cartilage on the ear. H how do you go about taking the uh, debulks in those areas? Do you do anything different? Are you less likely to do a debulk? So I am generally less likely to do a debulk in there. Um, but we did do them for this study. So all comers, we had to do them. Um, and our main, our main idea when we did the debulk was to make sure we maintained the fidelity of the Mohs layer. Um, so many times if it was eyelid um, or if it was ear, um, we would use a dermablade or we would go shy. So our general goal was to try to hit dermal sub-Q margin. In the vast majority of these cases, that's what happened. Um, but in those cases, in very, very thin skin, we kept things very thin on the debulk. Again, with that idea of balancing out um, exactly doing the debulk and making sure that your Mohs layer is going to be a reasonable Mohs layer and that you don't have to go further in the Mohs layer just because of the debulk. We never wanted that to be the case. Right. So I think in these instances, when you're on the ear, you know, you have to sort of balance those two things. And I think that's a very um, valuable point for both myself and our, our listeners that um, the debulk is a nice to have, whereas the, you know, 
um, comprehensive Mohs layer is sort of a must-have. So I agree with you wholeheartedly in how you phrased that. Ultimately, we're doing this to presumably upgrade the stage of our tumor. How are you documenting tumor stage for your squamous cell carcinomas? And I'm curious, both in terms of what staging system you use, how you handle non-hedonic squamous cell cancers, and what your general documentation process is. Mm -hmm. So in our Mohs note, we have staging for all squamous cells, all comers. Um, we stage on both AJCC8 and the Brigham. Um, we take all data. So usually that note is finished day of, unless there is something that we're seeing that we're sending off for permanent sectioning. So in 99%, we finish that day. Um, but yeah, we stage on both systems. If we're off of head and neck, um, again, we do both systems, AJCC8 and the Brigham, um, but with an asterisk next to the AJCC8 in that it is formulated only for head and neck, though we do stage it on the system in the note with the asterisk. Okay, that, that's more or less what, what I do also. I've struggled with how to stage some of the non-head and neck tumors simply because of that asterisk and the, the lack of validation. And that's where I'm really, truly grateful for the uh, Brigham and Women's staging system to have something to guide me for, you know, larger tumors on the hand, foot, um, etc. Yeah, and I think I think it's important for I think this is a metrics uh, metric that we as most surgeons really should be reporting in every case and. You know, in, in many instances, I think it's important to report on both of these. Um, in, when we deal in these collaborative efforts with people outside of our field, a lot of times we do like to talk about the Brigham a lot. I, I think it is it's very helpful for me clinically um, to use the Brigham. Um, but of course, those collaborators outside of dermatology um, are often only well-versed in the AJCC8. So I think being able to talk between both systems um, is really important and being able to stage and then enact a plan based on those stages for each of your tumors um, is important. And I have found that too, that in our multidisciplinary tumor board, it's still very reflexively going to the AJCC, which is now in its eighth edition and is, is fairly similar to the Brigham in, in many ways, but they're not the same. But I find that I oftentimes spend the first couple minutes of a squamous cell case reintroducing the Brigham and Women staging system. Is, is that what you found as well? Yeah, I think that's very much the case. I think the, the features that we see within the two systems are, are extremely similar, you know, with small modifications, obviously poor differentiation is in Brigham, that is not an AJCC8, and there are small differences in some of the other definitions. Otherwise, there's, they're quite similar. You know, I think the nice thing that the Brigham captures is this idea of multiplicity, you know, having more than one of these high risk factors and how that affects. Um, I think we've seen in multiple cohorts that that's important information. Um, I'd like to see that incorporated into future AJC, AJCC staging systems. We'll see um, what the nine looks like. But yes, I, I think that, you know, being well versed, being able to talk in the terms of AJCCA and maybe bringing the features of the Brigham um, to those multidisciplinary conversations is important because that tends to be um, the vernacular, the, the words that they use um, are the, the words of the AJCCA when describing squamous cell. Switching gears just a tiny bit in closing here, 
when, if ever, are you sending your debulks for permanent sections? It is not too common um, uh, that we send for permanent. I know there are a few papers out on this looking at, you know, how often are things identified on permanent sections. I think there was one out of Memorial Sloan Kettering that looked at this. Um, generally, for our practice, we will send off if, if we're having trouble reading. So often this will be um, in cases of, of um, really tough to read squamous cell skin cancer, so desmoplastic squamous cells. Um, in cases where we have a lot of inflammation and it's difficult to see through, through we, won't, we don't do IHC on our squamous cells in our Mohs lab. Um, so in those type of cases, we'll send off for permanent sectioning, um, though it ends up being you know, fairly irregular. Excellent. Well, I, I think all of these sort of topics are uh, very helpful. And I, I like how you all approach the paper, realizing that the true upstaging puts you into very narrow categories for high risk features in terms of moving up to poor differentiation or uh, large caliber named nerve perineural invasion and realizing that the frequency of that is probably not that high, but that there's still in, in mm -hmm. a third of the patients a very real upstaging outside of the staging system or simply just an increase in risk and that we get a lot of that information out of the debulk. So while it's not a performance measure yet and it's not really incorporated into everyone's practice, I think especially if you're working with immunosuppressed patients, transplant patients, or you see challenging squamous cell carcinoma, both performing the debulk, but then also, as, as you're saying, David, going through the motion of documenting the findings of the debulk and how they impact the final um, tumor stage so that that's available for our patient, ourselves, and our, our colleagues. So I, I think this was a, a valuable study to add to the literature. Thanks for those comments. Before we close, I certainly want to be mindful of your time. Are there any other comments that you have um, surrounding this topic um, uh, or, or squamous cell high risk as a whole um, that you want to share with the listeners? Well, that's a really big uh, topic, Tom. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, no, not specifically. You know, I think you know, this is an evolving picture of, of how do we, you know, it's, it's a very interesting time, um, you know, with the gene expression profiling now sort of coming onto the scene and, and how do we incorporate that? And also looking at um, how we define these high risk factors and how we use them appropriately. So, you know, one thing to take, for example, is, you know, how we use poor differentiation in the Brigham system, but not in AJCC8. You know, in a large way, that's due to a lack of, of reliability testing. Um, we have a paper coming out on that, sort of looking at reliability testing. And I, I think, you know, there are histopathologic criteria that we're missing um, in our staging system, especially in the AJCC8, because we don't have a good way to measure it. So I think as we sort of move forward, it's incorporating these new technologies that are coming out like gene expression profiling, but also looking at the risk factors that we know that are associated and how can we define those better so people are measuring these very similarly over time and we can really look at the outcomes and hopefully help us to pinpoint which of these tumors are the ones that we really need to be worried about. So I think that's where a lot of this is going down the road. Well, David, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. 
All right. I really appreciate it. It was great chatting. I also want to thank our listeners for their attention. Uh, If you are listening through one of the major podcast platforms, please make sure to hit the subscribe button so that you're the first to be notified about upcoming episodes. Uh, As always, to all of our listeners, please share this podcast with your colleagues and trainees. Let us know how we're doing and who you'd like to have on the show by contacting info at mosecollege.org. Uh, With that, I thank you all for your attention, and I hope you'll join me next time on Conversations in Mose Surgery.